Welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Tyvel, and as always, I'm, well, not always, but currently I'm joining you from the Washington, D.C. area, and I am joined by my wonderful co-host, Allie Bernison. Hello, I'm Allie, and I am joining you guys from Los Angeles, California. If you guys enjoy the Peace Catalyst podcast, please do us a favor to take some time and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps people find us and encourages others to give us a listen as well. This week, we are so honored and excited to interview Keith Giles. And of course, you might know that name. You might be a bit familiar with Keith because he used to be Becca's co-host on this podcast. So um, it was so, so awesome to have him back. I I guess I put him out of work. Just kidding. No, he uh, has been busy doing a lot of other things. So Keith and his wife, Wendy, have worked to share the love of Christ with people living in motels in Southern California for over 15 years. After serving as a licensed and ordained minister for over 20 years, Keith left his full-time pastoral ministry to start a house church that gave away 100% of the offering to help the poor in their community. After 11 years, Keith and Wendy moved to El Paso, Texas, where they are now working as peace builders in their local community. Keith is the author of several books, many books, I should say, including Jesus Unbound, Liberating the Word of God from the Bible, Jesus Unexpected, and the book that we'll be discussing today one of his most um, recent releases, Jesus Unarmed, How the Prince of Peace Disarms Our Violence. So this is part of a greater series, and it's basically asking the question, you know, what does it mean to, 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 to really follow Jesus, to love neighbor, to love, uh, to love enemy? And so he makes the assertion that for too long, those who carry the name Christian have ignored the Christ-like path of enemy love and creative nonviolence. For many of us, the Second Amendment has become more important than the Sermon on the Mount. And he, he states that it's time we begin to walk the path of peace marked out for us by the Prince of Peace and learn to study war no more. So that's a bit about the book. I love that. And I love, I'm so grateful that we get to have Keith back on the podcast as a guest. And, um, you know, we've interviewed him before, but it'll be great to hear about his new book. And I am personally so excited to get into his book and actually read all of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I always just love that phrase that he says, study war no more, because, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, I just love that concept of um, studying peace instead. So as Jesus followers, um, and kind of letting go of that legacy of always investing so much in war. What if we invested that much in peace? What would our world look like today? Right. So just going to read another quote from Keith. Um, that'll be our peace quote for this episode. It says, if we really had a Christ centered theology, then the greatest heresy would be failure to love others as Jesus commanded. (music) 
Keith, welcome back to the Peace Catalyst podcast. It's been it's been a while since we've had you officially on here, and yeah. it's great to have you back as a guest. Well, thank you so much, Becca and Ali. I'm uh, really glad to be back. Uh, yeah, it's like coming home. This is really great. <laughs> it's like You've watching magic, now. the two of you, because you guys used to be <laughs> co-hosts together, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Reunited at last. <laughs> yes, it's really great. <laughs> and I'm glad you guys are continued to do the podcast. I've been uh, watching and listening since I've been gone and uh, you have great guests and yeah, really, really happy with how it's been going. Uh, so yeah, thanks. Thanks, thanks Ali, for, for filling in and, and doing a wonderful job, better than I could have done. Mm, I don't know about that, but it has, yeah, I, I've absolutely loved it. So selfishly, I'm happy that, yeah, that you were great. <laughs> You were a great co-host. Well, very, very cool. See, it, it worked out for everybody. Mm-hmm. It did. And now you're being upgraded because we're actually interviewing you mm-hmm. about your most recent book called Jesus Unarmed, um, which I am also very excited to read, actually. Mm-hmm. But could you just give us an idea? What is the premise of the book? And mm-hmm. I know it belongs to a larger series of books. Um yeah. On Jesus. So yeah, if you could just tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, you're right. It is the final book in a, in a seven part series that I've been writing over the last five years. Um, and it's the final book. It's Jesus Unarmed, uh, um, How the Prince of Peace Disarms Our Violence. And <clears throat> the entire series is really just about looking at different things that I felt like over the years that we as Christians end up kind of putting in front of Jesus and obscuring Jesus a little bit and whether that's politics or um, different things in the Bible or just other doctrines and things that um, I wanted to write different books that kind of addressed things that I felt like we needed to, uh, you know, we just needed to have some clarity on those things and, and hopefully see Jesus a little clearer. So this issue, this book um, about nonviolence is probably one of the biggest ones uh, that I've seen. Um, in my experience, what I've realized is that um, for a lot of American Christians, especially, and I'm speaking from my own story, because this was my story, you know, raised in a group in Texas, um, you know, grew up in an evangelical conservative home, was a member of the NRA. You know, I, th- I thought you couldn't be a Christian if you didn't vote a certain way. And um, that was just my reality. But over time, I felt like the Holy Spirit kind of sort of challenging some of these things in my mind, in my life. And, and this was one of the areas, this idea of nonviolence. So, you know, just realizing that if I'm going to follow Jesus, then, you know, the Sermon on the Mount has to supersede um, the Second Amendment. Um, I have to be willing to say I'm going to follow Jesus more than I'm going to follow my ideology, my political, you know, um, um, framework that I grew up in and things like that. And for me, following Jesus is what it's really all about. And when I, when I think about following Jesus, it's like, well, it, he's the Prince of Peace. And uh, this was the Messianic prophecy was about Jesus being the Prince of Peace. And that um, one of the foundational things I even start with in the book is like, you know, if we go to Isaiah and we see these Messianic prophecies, what it tells us is that this Messiah is going to come. And when the Messiah comes, one of the major things this Messiah will do is um, will show us the path 
and the, the way of peace. And then it says that those who follow this Messiah, they will decide, hey, we're going to study war no more. You know what we're going to do? We, we've decided that we're going to take our weapons and beat them into gardening tools. And that's their decision. And what I found really funny is that a lot of times Christians who are not comfortable with this idea of Jesus being nonviolent will point to that messianic prophecy and say, well, you know, yeah, you know, the, the Messiah is going to, to uh, lead us into this place, into this reality where people study war no more, but it hasn't happened yet. So he's going to do that in the second coming, as if what that scripture says is that when the Messiah comes, he's going to force people against their will to do these things. That's not what it says. It says that when the Messiah comes the first time, he's going to show us the path to peace. And I, I would say, did he? Yeah, there's this whole Sermon on the Mount thing, all those red letters, his whole life, right? His birth is announced by angels proclaiming peace on earth, goodwill to all men, right? His whole message is love your enemies, don't kill them, bless them, you know, don't curse them. Um, overcome darkness with light, overcome evil with good. Uh, then he models that, right? Put away your sword. Those that live by the sword die by the sword. You know, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my, dis my disciples would fight. This is the whole, he hinges his kingdom being not of this world on the fact that his disciples don't fight. They don't use violence. And, you know, all the way to the, to the you know, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do to the people, the very people that are violently nailing him to a cross. And so, yes, <clears throat> the Messiah did come, as Isaiah predicted. He did teach us the way of peace. He modeled the way of peace. And then all that's left is for people who are following this Messiah to decide for themselves, you know what we're going to do? We're going to decide for ourselves because we see Jesus and we, we understand what he was all about. We're going to decide for ourselves to study war no more and to beat our weapons into plowshares. Like the missing piece is us. We have to make a decision that this is the way we want to live, and we want to live this way because we have been transformed by the life and the message of Christ. Um, so in a nutshell, that's really what I'm trying to show in the book. Of course, I go into much more, um, I cover scripture, but I also cover uh, a lot of the objections that a lot of times Christians have. And by the way, it's always Christians. I've never had a single argument with a non-Christian that Jesus is not violent. They seem to get that. Uh, atheists and not and not and, and people that aren't Christians are like, oh yeah, Jesus, yeah, he's he's the God that uh, that's what we like about Jesus. He was awesome. He was all about love your enemies and turn the other cheek and all that. So it's Christians who seem to have the most trouble um, accepting the idea that no, Jesus really meant those things and he was really serious about those things. And um, and I also talk about how I, I talk about how the early Christians for like roughly the first 300 years of church history, the disciples of the disciples of the disciples, consistently, um, they also, they got it. I mean, they lived a radical, nonviolent life uh, under intense persecution, uh, being threatened with crucifixion themselves or, you know, being beheaded or skinned alive or boiled alive or, you know, the horrific things that Christians did suffer but they did so nonviolently, and they did so loving their enemies, and they did that because that Messiah had come, and that Messiah had shown them the path of peace. And um, my hope in writing this book is to show Christians that, and um, hopefully inspire them to, 
to do the same, walk in that same path. That was a really long answer to your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. Yeah, it's so great um, to hear kind of the scope of, yeah, what your book goes through. And um, it makes me want to read it more because especially looking at sort of the um, early church history and just understanding that dynamic of where our faith comes from and where it is today and, and how we practice it. Um yeah in all different communities and uh, different demographics. So yeah, that's great to hear. Um, I'm curious to hear, for example, if you were to go back and have a conversation with your younger self, um, yeah. Keith 1.0, if you will, how like, so you're like in the NRA and you're like, yes, like this is what's, this is okay. This is aligned with my faith. Like, how would you sort of start a dialogue with that version of yourself to engage on, on this topic of nonviolence? Wow, Becca, that is an amazing question. That is a great question. No one's ever asked me that, but that is a great question. If I had a time machine, I could go back and talk to Keith (laughs) (laughs) 1.0. Well, I mean, it's funny because in a way I kind of feel like this is, I kind of wrote this book for that guy, right? Because that's who I was. And I, I really kind of feel like these, the things I'm talking about in the book are kind of the, the, these are the sorts of things that over a longer period of time, slowly uh, change my mind about this thing. Right. Um, so I, I think the, probably the first thing I would do is um, probably talk to that younger version of myself and say, uh, you know, this is, cause this is what changed me. This, this was the first sort of, um, push that I had in this direction was when I realized that the, that the gospel that Jesus preached was not about saying a prayer so you could go to heaven when you die. And that was the most radical. It seems really simple, but it was the most radical thing anyone had ever said to me. Um, this happened to me probably close to 20 years ago. Um, I was licensed and ordained as a Southern Baptist pastor. I was serving on churches. I, w- I had been in, you know, I was in a Christian rock band in college and preached the gospel and, you know, all that I, I, what I thought was the gospel. And I thought I had it figured out. I thought I knew what, this, what it was all about. And then someone said to me exactly that. Hey, Keith, you know, the gospel is not about saying a prayer so you can go to heaven when you die. And I was like, it isn't um, because I thought, I mean, what else is there? Um, and the, the, so the radical shift for me was the recognition that, well, you know, so this is what I would say to my younger self, go to the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's why they're called the gospels. That's because that's where you would look to find the gospel. And in those gospels, you'll see Jesus, right? The guy we're all following. And he says, he proclaims it's in the red letters, you know, good news. That's what gospel means. So he says, this is the good news. Repent, which metanoia is the Greek word. Repent doesn't mean feel sorry for your sins. It means think differently, change your mind. So he's about to say something that's going to shock you and make you stop and think. So he says, metanoia, repent, change your mind, think differently. And then he says this, this is the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand or the kingdom of God is within you. And that was the, that was the good news that Jesus preached. Um, that's what he said later on in Luke, I think. He gathers the disciples, he sends them out two by two, and it says he sends them out uh, into the surrounding village to preach the gospel. Well, we know that the gospel he sent them preaching wasn't, hey, there's this guy you've never met over here who's going to die on a cross in a couple of years, 
and he's going to rise from the dead. And if you put your faith in him, you'll go to heaven when you die. You know how we know they didn't preach that? Because they didn't believe that. Every time Jesus told them something about, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. The son of man is going to go to Jerusalem and be arrested and, and you know, be crucified. But on the third day, he'll rise again. They always looked at each other like, what is he talking about? Or they rebuked him. No, Peter says, no, this will never be. So he didn't send them out to preach anything about the cross or dying or going to heaven because they didn't even get that part of it yet. That was like, they were complete, they were like, no, 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 no. But what they did get was the Sermon on the Mount. That's what he preached, right? This idea of the kingdom of God is at hand. The king, in other words, the kingdom of God isn't something that um, you first have to die and then you enter the kingdom of God at the end of your life. Um, Jesus wasn't, asking the question that we typically ask, which is, if you died tonight, do you know for a fact you would be in heaven tomorrow? But what Jesus asked instead is, if you woke up tomorrow and you were alive, and hopefully most of us will be, um, how will you live your life? And Jesus says, follow me. So he's inviting us, he was inviting people then, and he's inviting people now to enter the kingdom right now, not don't wait till you're dead. You can enter the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God in your life right now, today. And all that involves is, Jesus says, take up your cross, die to yourself daily, and follow me. So again, it's this path of peace that Isaiah talks about. That That's what he did. He shows up and he says, hey, uh, follow me, and I'm going to show you this path that leads to peace. And so that's the good news. The gospel is we can enter the kingdom right now, this very second. We don't have to wait till we're dead. Um, that means we get to experience this, this connection, this relationship with God and with through Christ right this second. And then after you die, yeah, it keeps going. But you don't have to put it on pause. You're not putting it on hold. You're supposed to begin that process, that journey, uh, that transformation today. And so for me... That rocked my world, that realization that the, the gospel that Jesus preached was about the kingdom. It was about living in the kingdom today. It was about following him on a daily basis in my actual life, taking up my own cross and following him every day. And to do that means to then wake up and say every day, all right, Jesus, you know, what are we doing today? Where are we going today? What is it you want me to do? And, I, and I'm going to be following the example of, of Christ uh, on a daily basis. And if I do that, that means I'm going to have to walk in this path of peace. So um, that was the biggest thing for me that, that kind of led me in this direction and led me to these realizations. So I guess I would start there with anybody and say, I think we have to have a fundamentally a, a, a change of mind and a change of heart about what the gospel is. And I think it's something that Jesus defines. He, he tells us what the gospel is, and it's found in the gospels. It seems pretty simple. Although, like I said, I missed it for most of my life. Hmm. Yeah. There's so much in there that is truly quite profound. Um, and I loved the, how you turned the question that might be common to some of us on, you flipped it with, you know, if you were alive, not if you were, if you were to die tonight, would you be in heaven tomorrow? But if you were to be alive tomorrow, what then what, you know, I, yeah. I love that. I haven't heard that before. Um, so I guess part of, part of dying to yourself is dying to whatever it is that is 
wedged in between you and this this version of Jesus, a Jesus who is unarmed and nonviolent, um, dying to, yeah, political ideology, um, belief system, whatever it may be. But I'm curious, backing up, I mean, what do you think for us, and I say us as, I don't know, maybe Americans, maybe evangelical Americans, but just speaking from, from your context, what has obstructed our view of this kind of Jesus who is nonviolent? And I mean, I, I don't know if we can point to one thing, if there's, yeah. If, yeah, if we could just dismantle this belief, then we could really see the Jesus that preaches the Sermon on the Mount rather than, you know, yeah, I don't know. That's a great question. Yeah, I do. And I didn't, I try to identify those things in the, in the book as well. Again, just from my own experience, like, one thing is I recognize that from a very young age, um, all of my heroes carried guns. Uh, I talk about this in the book about how, um, when I, when I'm an old man, okay. So when I was a kid, I, you know, I was watching Starsky and Hutch and, uh, SWAT and Beretta and, um, all these detective shows and cop shows on TV, Gunsmoke, Matt Dillon and the wild, wild west and all these. And those are my favorite shows and my favorite heroes, even Star Trek, like Captain Kirk, right? He had a phaser pistol. Everyone had a gun. And, um, and so I, I realize now that a whole lot of just the entertainment that I consumed as a young child, um, whether that was comics or cartoons or TV shows or whatever it was, was constantly reinforcing this idea of redemptive violence. And, and just very simply, it's, it's just this, it's slowly you begin as a child to accept it. I, I think every American, everyone, uh, who's who, who's consumed any media as a child has has received the same message and it's this underlying assumption of redemptive violence and what do i mean by redemptive violence i mean exactly what those tv shows and all that entertainment portrays as the idea there's a bad guy there's an evil there's some horrible thing happening there's innocent people that need to be protected or rescued or saved the hero shows up and and the the, the way the hero overcomes the bad guy and the evil and saves the innocent person or the, the people that are in, in danger is usually at the end of a gun. He either threatens the bad guy that I'm, you know, uh, I'm going to kill you, let them go, or he flat out kills them. He just shoots them and they die. And then yay, uh, evil is vanquished. The, the good guy wins. You know, he spins his pistol and blows the, blows the smoke out of the end of the barrel and, uh, and gets the girl and saves the day. That whole idea that, violence is necessary to overcome evil, redemptive violence, is just something so permeated into our DNA that 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 is one layer of it, I think. But then the other thing is on the Christian side of things, uh, again, what's layered on isn't this contrasting picture of Jesus as someone who doesn't kill to save us, but dies, right? Uh, a savior who says, I'm, you know, the way I'm going to overcome evil is with love. And I'm going to actually ask you to overcome evil with love, not with violence. Mm -hmm. Um, So instead of getting Jesus, most of the time, uh, at least in my experience, I should just say growing up, um, I heard Old Testament stories, right? My heroes were David. You know, David is this, uh, he, he, he kills the giant and cuts off his head. Yay. Again, more redemptive violence stories, but that's what I got from the church. I didn't get Jesus. I got Old Testament stuff. 
uh, and which again, a lot of it was redemptive violence. And, you know, even, even in those Old Testament stories, you know, yes, David is held up as some kind of a hero, but at the same time, when David says, you know, God, I, uh, it's not, it's not fair that I, it's not right that I live in this wonderful palace and, you know, God, you're the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent somewhere. I'm going to build a wonderful temple for you, God. Well, God's response is pretty amazing. Um, but one of the things that God says about this idea to build a temple uh, for, for him and for the Ark of the Covenant is that David, whoever builds it, it won't be you. Why not? Because you have blood on your hands. And so there is a separation, even in the Old Testament, from between violence and and the house of God and the, and the people of God, right? And so... When you, when you fast forward into the New Testament, you have Paul saying things like, you and I are the priests of God. We're priests in, God, in the kingdom of God. Um, you and I are the daily sacrifice. There's no, there's no, we don't have to go, that's why we don't sacrifice lambs and goats and, or, and bulls and things like that anymore, right? Because, because Christ, first of all, was a sacrifice, but now we're the living sacrifice. Um, and not only that, we are the temple. The We, the people, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so... If David in the Old Testament couldn't build a temple of stone because he had blood on his hands and he was a man of violence, shouldn't we then now, if we are the temple, if we are the priests of God's kingdom, can we also then have blood on our hands? Can we be people of violence? And the emphatic message of the New Testament, uh, and then again, the all of early church history, is this idea that no, that we either carry the cross or we carry a sword, and we can't carry both. Um, in fact, there's even a little phrase in one of, I think in one of Paul's letters where he talks about how we, we carry, um, we carry, I think it uses the phrase, uh, we- uh, tools of righteousness in both hands. <laughs> so there's not even any hint that, well, I got a cross in one hand and a sword in the other. No, no, no. You have a, you're using both hands, right? A cross is really heavy. It takes both hands to carry a cross. Uh, and the irony is that when you're carrying a cross, the only one that dies is you, uh, not not anyone else, right? It's about your dying, and again, like as you said, Ali, it's it, it's it's ultimately dying to those things like nationalism, uh, tribalism, the sense of us and them, um, the kinds of things that lead us to do violence. Uh, you know, and I think Peace Catalyst is wonderful about helping us think through those kinds of things about what are the things that lead to violence. Typically, it's an us and them mentality. Uh, it's not really knowing, quote unquote, the other. It's believing the worst about the other because we don't know any of them, right? We've we, we never met any of them. So we can easily believe horrible things about them. Okay. And so Jesus calls us to take up a cross, die to those ways of thinking and living and being, and be transformed into people who don't think in terms anymore of us and them. We just see people loved by God, everybody, right? We're, all, we're children of God. We're made in the image of God. God is love, right? All who live in love live in God. God lives in them, it says in 1 John. Um, those are radical ideas, and they're transformative ideas if we're willing to embrace them. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's a lot for us to consider. And, and frankly, these are not the kinds of things anyone really ever taught me from the pulpit growing up. Uh, that's why I feel like I needed to write this book, because I think there's some really important things that we need to remember or consider, or for a lot of us, we never heard it, maybe hearing it for the first time. That was such an amazing, um, yeah, like fully um, comprehensive description of like <laughs> looking at the old, yeah, that was incredible. Um, 
And I love that example you brought up about the temple and the fact that we are the temples now. And so what, how does that inform the ways that we interact with violence? And yeah, yeah, that is so incredibly powerful. So thank you, Keith, for. Yeah. And one more thing I want to say um, Mm -hmm. on that analogy about us being priests. um, So just reminded me that somebody pointed out that even in the old Testament, when the children of Israel went into battle, the priests were not allowed to go into battle. So again, that's another powerful thing about, you know, reframing in the New Testament, the idea that we are now, you know, that the priesthood of all believers, that because we are in Christ, we are now priests in, in Christ's kingdom. That's another image. Like, that's another thing that, that Jewish believers would have understood instantly, right? Oh, you're saying that all of us who follow Christ are priests? Well, they automatically associate this idea that, well, to be a priest means you don't go into battle because priests didn't engage in warfare. So again, all, uh, these markers are there. These clues are there. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of it has been, for most of us, um, kind of it's kind of been modified and Americanized for our ears, and we miss some of these kind of things. Um, so that's that's again what I was trying to point out in the book, and um, but I also tried to approach from the book um, research. I mean, there's incredible research that's been done on uh, the e- efficacy of nonviolent creative nonviolent resistance to uh, dictatorships or armed conflict. Again, people don't believe that. Like most of the time when you talk about nonviolence, you know, loving your enemy and all this kind of stuff, the the pushback from a lot of us is, well, that doesn't work. That's just stupid. You're just going to get killed. You're going to get blown away. You're going to get, you're going to become a doormat. Um, Why would you do that? You know, we still, because we still believe, we still have faith in violence as something that solves problems. Uh, which is, it, it doesn't, this is the thing. And I, I wanted to spend a lot of time in the book sharing some of those, um, some of this amazing research that's been done. Um, like I, I share a couple of things, but one of the most powerful ones is uh, there's a woman named Erica Chinoweth and she has a book called Why Civil Resistance Works. And her research is amazing. Like she talked, she looked at over 300 cases where nonviolence was employed uh, over, I think, between 1900 and 2006. So it's a, uh, a long time frame to, to look at this. And what she found was that nonviolent campaigns were twice as successful as violent insurgencies, uh, and also more than twice as likely to achieve at least partial success. Um, and they found, for, for example, where, where they force a dictator to hold real, true, and competitive elections, um, violent campaigns were more than twice as likely to fail so the, the numbers are on our side. This is what's so crazy to me. Like, we don't just have scriptural support for this idea of loving our enemies and uh, being nonviolent and following Jesus this way. As followers of Jesus, that's all we should need. But we have this additional element of, again, this counterintuitive thing that, by the way, this works. And we have data uh, that shows us that it works. Um, another thing she found was that, um, sorry, I'm reading from the book here. She says, Chenoweth found that nonviolent campaigns were 46% more effective against repressive opponents compared to only 20% for violent campaigns. In her research, she looked at three maximal goals in her data set, regime change, enemy occupation, and succession. What she found was that in 90% of cases, all resistance efforts experienced massive repression from the state level, but even so, the nonviolent campaigns still outperformed the violent ones by two to one. And then in the book, I talk about why that is, because there are good reasons for why nonviolent resistance works compared to violent resistance. Um, But again, I I just, 
I want to give people an assurance that what Jesus was talking about makes sense. It is right. It is true. It's not pie in the sky, you know, butterflies and, and birdies singing like la 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 nonsense. Yeah. It's absolutely true. It's demonstrated. I give, um, in the book, I give several real world examples, uh, some of them very recently, uh, of how nonviolent uh, resistance has overthrown violent regimes, um, ended oppression, um, ended war, and uh, it's it's powerful. It's true, and it works. And Jesus has this incredible wisdom to offer us that as humanity that we could take to heart. And if we would, uh, we would see this change again. This is this thing where it's not that it hasn't been tried; it's, it has been tried. It's just that we haven't been fully convinced as, as a people, as humanity, to let go of this, to let go of violence as a way of solving problems. Um, because war, look, war is the worst idea humanity has ever had. It's it, When you boil, boil it down, war is really stupid. I think it's the dumbest thing we've ever come up with. Like this idea of like, okay, this group of people over here, uh, they have a problem with this other group. And so there's a conflict and there's a disagreement. And they, so to solve the, the problem, to solve the disagreement, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have my kids kill your kids and your, your kids are going to try and kill my kids. And we're just going to let that keep going until one of us finally says, okay, okay, stop, stop, stop. Let's just stop. Stop killing my kids. I'll give you what you want. What a stupid way to solve problems. Can't we solve problems? Can't we think of more creative, intelligent ways to solve problems? Yes, I mean, heck, we could just take the Olympics and have that. The, hey, if you win the gold medal, your side wins. There you go. No one died. And it, it's take your great greatest athlete, your greatest performer, have them jump up there and perform. And then, you know, if your side wins the gold medal, you win. That at least makes more sense than war. War is just stupid. And we've been doing it for thousands of years. And, you know, it, it, war, violence leads to more violence. And it's like Jesus shows up and says, guys, you've been doing the same thing over and over again. For so long. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Here's something you've never tried. Try instead of returning violence for violence, evil for evil, here's what you should do. What if you love your enemies? What if you bless them? What if you were good to them? Right? What if you disarmed them and surprised them? And instead of responding to their aggression with more aggression, you responded to them with, with love and with kindness and with mercy. Um, here's the thing, at least. It's the one thing you haven't tried. You've tried these other things and it hasn't worked and it's, it doesn't work and it, it keeps not working and you keep doing it. And so if we could just get it and try it, I, what I love is that there at least are some examples throughout history of people who did try it. And, and big surprise, when they do, 90% of the time, it works. And it works way, way better than violence. So um, I, I just try to come at this in every possible way that I could. Uh, for Christians. Like, I want to give you scriptural support, but I also want to give you real world examples. Uh, and I want to also give you the data and, and the, the, the facts, the statistics, that this really does work. And all that's really left is for us to decide, are we going to, are we going to follow Jesus in this or not? Hmm. So great. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. And I, I think it's, it's so important to show, yeah, like holistically, like, it's not just what Jesus like preached. It's also like, wow, it's effective. Like when we look at real world examples and there's yeah. empirical evidence that aligns with 
um, what Jesus taught. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I'm curious getting into the nuts and bolts. Um, so, you know, at, at the beginning of our conversation, you were talking about how we as disciples are that missing piece. You know, Jesus modeled a life of nonviolence um, very clearly if we open our eyes to see, but, but it's us who have kind of dropped the ball, so to speak. So, you know, I mean, in light of everything that's happening right now, all of the conflict, um, all of the political tension, thinking about, you know, Roe v. Wade and just just what our culture is talking about. And you don't have to necessarily loop in the cultural context, but I guess I'm just wondering what, what are the pra- what are the practices what are the skills um the principles that you get into in the book um when we think about the work of engaging in peacemaking and you know not only accepting this as an ideology or is that as the way that Jesus lived so thus we should too but then what do we do <laughs> and that's a pretty big question but yeah wondering if there are a few points that you want to highlight from the book when we're thinking about application. Yeah. Well, that's a great question. Um, well, on one level, I'm at a very simplistic level. I guess it may sound simplistic. Um, one thing I feel like I I can boil down and I'm pretty sure I mentioned this when I was, you know, co-hosting the podcast with Becca here, uh, because it's something that with peace catalyst, I felt like I, I could see pretty clearly was this idea of like, there's sort of two paths we can take in when we are, we're engaging someone who disagrees with us. So we have some conflict with somebody, whether that's a political argument, whether that's a religious argument, uh, we have a disagreement with a, with another person or maybe another group of people. So there's really two paths we can take and one path will lead us to conflict and another path will lead us to peace. The, the path that will lead us to conflict, unfortunately, is the one that most of us tend to take, which is we focus on our differences. We constantly compare, you know, well, I believe this, but you believe that. I say this, but you say that. I'm right about this, but you're wrong about that. And the the minute you begin your conversation or your relationship with that other group or that other person on that basis, comparing only the ways you disagree, well, we know what that leads to, right? It leads to disagreement and an argument and a fight. And uh, if you keep going, it eventually is going to lead to to violence and eventually to war and possibly to genocide. I mean, as long as you you are committed to that path, that will eventually, that's where it's going to take you if you don't stop and turn around, right? You just keep going, 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 going. Um, and so, but there's another path. And I really do feel like this is what Jesus uh, helps us to do. The other path we can take, in, it begins with not engaging with that person or that group of people only by focusing on the ways we disagree, but instead to find common ground. What is it we do agree on? There's gotta be something, right? So what are the things we agree on? Uh, We don't look at uh, all the ways we disagree. That leads to conflict and arguments and we're never gonna get anywhere. Okay, so, but if we start with, well, what is it we do agree on? When you engage the other person, if you focus on what do we have in common? What do we agree on? Let's, Let's build our conversation starting there. What are some things we agree on? Then if you continue on that path, what that leads to a conversation, it leads to learning. It's like recognizing, well, I don't know everything. Here's what I know. What do you know? I'm listening to you, right? You're now in a posture of listening. 
Um, and if you continue on that path, then that path leads to potentially, you know, um, learning, growth, friendship, connection, um, and peace. That's the that's where that path will lead you. And so I guess in, in general, I think if Christians are looking for like, how do we begin and how do we approach this? I would really encourage us to begin there. Begin with having a conversation about what you agree on um, rather than focusing on what you disagree on. And so, I mean, you know, uh, now the, the thing is though, that's a general idea in specific, it's going to look really different, right? right? Because even if, even if it's, a common uh, disagreement, uh, religious or political or something like that, the person you're across from is different, right? Um, they may not agree with you on everything that you think they do. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to look different in every situation. Um, and then I would say also, though, about, about nonviolence specifically, uh, when you're engaging, when people are seeking conflict with you, like they, the other person isn't seeking common ground. The other person wants violence. They want conflict. They want you know, to smash your face in, or they want to crush you and destroy you and, and eliminate you. Um, well, in, the, in that case, I think Jesus is our best example. And, and in those moments, it's sort of like in that moment, when you're in that argument, when you're in that conflict, um, I kind of feel like you're going to get it in the moment. The Holy Spirit's going to say to you, you have to be open to it. You have to say, okay, Holy Spirit, what do I do? How do I respond here in a, in a way that brings the kingdom that allows the kingdom to break in that that sort of switches the polarity on this very you know stressful uh, angry conflict that we're having um, so it's going to be it's going to be different in every situation uh, in the book I try to give examples of actual situations that have come up where people in the moment <clears throat> excuse me in in that moment have had um, you know, like the Holy Spirit just sort of say, do this or try that or ask him this or do this. And and it has worked. It's been something where it's like, oh, wow, they just flipped a switch and totally changed it. But it's unique and sometimes to every, it's unique to every situation. Um, like I, I share a story in the book. This is a true story of a guy in New York City um, who was working late night, uh, got off work, at, you know, like two o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the morning or something like that. And was walking uh, to, we're walking home and a young man with a knife jumped out and you know robbed him took his wallet and uh it was cold and so the guy the kid was shivering and he took off his jacket and he gave him his jacket and he goes what are you doing he goes well you're you know if you're gonna be out here doing this all night you're, you're you probably need to be warm it's freezing and the kid was like so disarmed he was like what and then he said you know i'm gonna walk over to this diner here i always walk over here and get something to eat before i go home you know you, you want to come you're hungry you want to come with me so the guy goes, the kid goes with him and they sit down and they have a meal together and they talk and he just starts asking the kid about his life. And at the end of that conversation, he says, Hey, uh, well, the bill comes and he goes, you got my wallet. So I guess it's on you. Uh, so he gives him the wallet back and, uh, he gives him some money out of his wallet says, you know, Hey, here's some money. And then he goes, Hey, can you give me your knife? And so he hands him the knife and then they give each other a hug and they leave. I mean, that's just one example. That's beautiful. But you know, you can't turn that into a formula like, okay, every time this happens this is what I do. Because in each moment, it's going to be different, right? There's other examples where someone is being robbed and they start singing worship songs or they start praying, you know, for the other person or they offer them a sandwich. I mean, there's all these radical things that happen, but you're not going to know until you're in that moment what you should do. But I think what I'm saying is you should, we should be as followers of Jesus open to those, those acts of kindness and love and mercy that are creative nonviolence that disarms the other person. You're responding in a way they're not expecting. 
and you're responding in a way that's sort of spirit led, um, that in that moment, it kind of works to disarm. But, but I want to say too, I also talk about this in the book. Um, there are times we have to be, we have to understand this. There are going to be times when you're face to face with somebody who, who wants to do you harm and, uh, and you do your best, right? You respond with love. You respond with compassion. You do the creative, beautiful thing and they kill you. And, uh, the greatest example of that would be Jesus. I mean, who's better at nonviolence than Jesus? right? He invented this thing. We're following his example. Did it work for him? Well, it depends on what you mean by work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, and so again, this is part of it too. I think we have to shift our our definition of success. I think for a lot of us, <clears throat> success would be um, similar to success in the redemptive nonviolence story, right? Uh, we stop the bad guy, we save the innocent person, we're celebrated as the hero. Yay. That's what happens when you use redemptive violence, right? Pull out the gun, you use the violence, you beat up the bad guy, and then the result is evil is conquered, people are saved and protected, you go on to be celebrated and come back again next week and do it again. Um, with nonviolence, that may be the outcome, and you could call that success, if if you use nonviolence, and yes, the, the person is disarmed, the, the good is done, people are protected, everyone's saved, and yay, you can you live another day. But quite often, yes, we know that's why they're called martyrs in early church history, um, because they did exactly what Jesus would have done. And just like Jesus, they were put to death. Um, But what I also talk about in the book is that isn't failure. Um, If I die following this beautiful, loving, my enemy, nonviolent path of Christ, for me anyway, I don't know about anyone else, for me, that's success. I would love to put that on my tombstone or somebody else because I'll be dead. Put that on my tombstone. He died loving his enemy. He died putting these radical, beautiful teachings of Jesus into practice. That would be success for me. Um, And even if I die in the process of following Jesus in this beautiful way, even my death, um, I think would continue to have an impact on the person who who ended up taking my life because uh, they would have to constantly wonder why I responded the way I did. Why did I respond with love and compassion for them rather than with violence. Um, and I think even that eventually will, will transform them. And I, I, I want to say real quick, I, I point this out in the book too. Here's the, here's the kind of radical thing. If Christians today, you know, responded, oh, I'm sorry, if Christians in the, in the first century responded the way Christians today respond to threats of violence, right? Um, the, the story would have been really different. So for example, like, you know, if, if we, you knew that in your town there was some guy going around and he was knocking on people's doors and uh, he was going to pull, and if you were a Christian, he was going to pull you out and beat you up and put you in jail and you're going to lose your job and maybe they're going to put your kids in, in jail. You know, most Christians in America would be like, I'm going to, you're not coming into my house. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to defend myself. You better watch out. Uh, that's how most Christians, at least, uh, let me say, that's how I would have responded. Keith 1.0, that's how I would have responded. Well, you come to my house, you better you better be better watch out. Um, but the irony is, I find, is that if Christians in the first century had been like that, like we are today, when Saul of Tarsus knocked on their door, they would have killed him. And so he never would have had a chance to meet Jesus on the road. Uh, he would never have experienced the transformation from Saul of Tarsus to Paul, the apostle. And he would have never written most of the New Testament. We wouldn't even have the New Testament because those Christians back there would have killed him. 
right? And so again, it's recognizing that when we refrain from violence, we already have a beautiful example of it in Paul, that um, when we refrain from violence, we leave open the door for this transformation, this radical transformation, um, that God could then transform even the violent person into someone who's one of the greatest apostles of the church, who writes most of the New Testament, right? Who becomes this radical person who goes from persecuting the church to being its greatest champion. And so that's the, that's the thing I want us to get is that um, there's a reason why Jesus calls us into this direction and calls us to walk this path. He has a wonderful plan, a beautiful testimony of transformation that he wants to create, not just in quote unquote our enemies, but in us, right? That we have to have to go through this transformation process as well. Um, and it seems to me that this is kind of the missing piece, as I was saying at the beginning of the interview, that uh, what's missing is we have to we have to accept it. We have to believe it and we have to choose to walk in that path. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, this all of this is incredible. And I, I hope that, yeah, as we take in everything that you're sharing, that we can, you know, spend our own time kind of reflecting and reading your book and looking at all of the things that you've um, put so much time and effort and thought and research into so we can, yeah, come to our own conclusions about what we're, yeah, what we're looking at, what we're seeing and, um, and hopefully come to a place of greater dialogue and conversation on this topic as well. Yeah, I guess just to close, um, would love to leave space for you. Anything that you want to close with or share um, as well as maybe where we could get the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, the book's available on Amazon. It's on, it's in print. Um, it's in Kindle. It's also an audiobook. Uh, all my books are available that way as well. Um, you can follow me on keithjiles.com. That's my blog. Uh, I'm also on a bunch of other uh, social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, if you want to find me there. Um, I do another solo podcast called Second Cup with Keith that comes out every couple of weeks where I cover some of these things as well. Um, I guess what I would leave you with is... Um, well, I'm actually going to read something. It's, it's in my book, but it's actually a quote from somebody else. So it's a quote from a guy named Rob Grayson. <clears throat> and he says, how many times down the centuries have Christians indulged in excessive peacemaking, nonviolence and mercy, and then projected that peaceful image onto God as justification for their peace-filled worldview? Conversely, how many times have Christians down the centuries indulged in excessive aggression, violence and vengeance and then projected that onto god as justification for their violent ways as human beings we are not at much risk of spontaneously being too nice too kind too loving too compassionate or too nonviolent. left unchecked however we are very likely to spontaneously be unpleasant unkind unloving merciless and violent so when you see someone Insisting that violence is part of God's nature, ask yourself how likely it is that they are projecting their own violent human tendencies onto God, just as some of the biblical writers did. And when you see someone trying to read the Bible discerningly, so as to discover the all-forgiving, enemy-loving, nonviolent God, consider the possibility that they have actually dared to come to terms with their own violence and to see that God, by contrast, is absolutely nonviolent. And uh, I love that quote. I think it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful question. 
How often have Christians throughout history been excessively peacemaking, just too loving? Um, well, it's been a long time, let's put it that way. <laughs> and uh, I think it'd be great if we could have that kind of a shift again. Um, how beautiful, right? How exciting, how, how wonderful would it be if when people thought about Jesus followers, they thought about, man, those people are just too loving. They're too forgiving. They're too compassionate. They're just too merciful. Man. Um, or when there was a conflict, right, in the world, there was, you know, when we have wars, when we have conflicts, when we have violence in our inner cities, that the first people they would look to, to call, to bring peace, would be those peacemaking, enemy-loving followers of Jesus. Sadly, we're not their first phone call. Um, right. But I would love it for that to be the way it is. You know, I'd love, I'd love for us to, again, um, live such beautiful lives of, of nonviolence and love for everyone, even people that don't agree with us, even people that don't, you know, how, share our faith uh, story. I think that is what we're called to do. I think that is the witness, right? That is what the expectation that I think Jesus had uh, when he called us to follow him and take up our cross and die to ourselves and uh, and just love until it either kills us or transforms the world around us. And I think that's the potential. Mm. Powerful place to close. Okay. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Keith. was such a great conversation. And I think for so many reasons, such a timely conversation. And, you know, we touched on this a bit in the episode, but I don't know. I just want to, to check in with you, check in with people, although can't really hear back from you in the moment, but, but I'm wondering about how that hit, you know, the ears of our audience. I, I think, for me, it, it was a challenging, challenging conversation in some ways, uh, a convicting conversation because these, you know, the, the application of nonviolence isn't, I don't know. It doesn't seem straightforward. It does seem complex. Um, we are obviously part of Mm -hmm. a country where there are varying opinions on that. And, um, where we see the, the fallout of, of that in so many different ways. And so I guess what I'm, what I'm thinking right now is, you know, above all the importance of listening to these kinds of perspectives with open ears, you know, I, I feel a bit redundant because we are constantly saying, you know, listening with a posture of humility and receptivity to others' perspectives. But I mean, I think it it can be said again, because especially right now, we, we find ourselves in, it seems to be one of, one of two camps, one of two schools of thought. Um, And it is, all too easy to essentialize a person into their ideology or the way that they're looking at, um, at the tragedies that we've recently experienced around gun violence and violence in our country, you know, not even just school shootings, but I mean, we see violence 
playing out on so many different levels, individual to individual, systemic levels. So, you know, this doesn't only apply to to recent shootings, but, um, but I guess I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm wanting to check in with our audience and just say, you know, we, we definitely, um, we Mm -hmm. hope that, that wherever, wherever you are and whatever your line of thinking is that, um, as you, as you heard Keith's words that you'll, you'll take encouragement from them and you'll be able to engage, engage with them in a way that, um, encourages and curiosity rather than, you know, okay, this is, this is crazy. Like, you know, he's, he's this kind of person, this is the way that he thinks and then pushing it all away. Um, Mm -hmm. because obviously, you know, we are, we grow from, uh, from a pool of diverse perspectives rather than just hearing our own. So, um, yeah, mm-hmm. so I don't know. That's kind of what's coming up for me right now. What, yeah. What say you, Becca, what are you thinking about? <laughs> wow. Well, that was just, um, yeah, I feel like you articulated that so well. And, um, I, yeah, I couldn't agree more more. I think it's really important to not, you know, shut down conversation, even in our own minds, um, when we hear a perspective that maybe we don't fully agree with, or we don't fully understand, or, um, you know, I think like it can be, yeah. And maybe you did hear what Keith shared and you're like, yeah, hundred percent. Like that's how I think too, or that's what I feel as well. Or, maybe there's some more like nuance to the conversation that like your perspective might add, or um, maybe you totally disagree. And, <laughs> um, and I think like, yeah, I guess what I'm processing is like, how can we collaborate even with those that we don't agree with on some of these issues? Because mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, I'm sure we all have the same like end goal in mind, which is, more safety in our communities, which is like, um, to decrease violence, to decrease, um, the effects of violence. Right. And if we can't like come to the table to discuss like the best way to go about that and even be willing to make some kind of compromise, then, um, we probably won't get anywhere. And yeah, I know for myself, it's, it can be tempting for me to, like be so staunchly, you know, in my place of how I think about this topic or these issues or, um, and yeah, I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge some of the like, you know, evidence-based like science behind like the effectiveness of nonviolence and thinking about those important aspects of the conversation, not just to like disregard like research and and knowledge in that way but I think for us as peacemakers as peace builders in our own communities to also be willing to engage in conversation and dialogue with people who might think differently than us um, and not to just shut down conversations so that's an area of growth for me personally because <laughs> I think I just get so passionate and I just want to you know tell people you know yeah but you know, 
that's wrong or like what about this and that is not healthy for any of us wherever we are um on this topic so Mm -hmm. yeah I think that's what I'm reflecting on yeah yeah no that's such a good point because you bring up um you you bring up the reality that you know there research does exist um you know there we can um bolster our arguments with evidence and that's not to be disregarded certainly um and you know this isn't to say everyone's right um and everyone's right all the time rather um but but it is to say that um we aren't we aren't we can't be defined by our 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 opinion on something our a political stance and ideology um mm-hmm. and to not lose mm-hmm. the person the humanity as we're seeking yeah. to engage in conversation and collaborate um yeah mm-hmm. so but y- yeah i really appreciate you you saying that because of course yeah and it's so much it's so much harder than um it sounds obvious that we're making it sound you know it's not yeah it's definitely not a simple mm-hmm. process and so i along with mm-hmm. you am challenged and um yeah i'm i'm excited for i'm sure plenty of opportunities to put this into practice <laughs> yeah exactly and i think like if we could move from the reaction of like how could you think that to oh, I'm interested in learning more about why, how you came to think that way about this topic. You know, right. with, like you were saying earlier, like genuine curiosity mm-hmm. instead of this kind of knee-jerk reaction of like, how can you think that? Or like, how can you right. think that this would work or whatever it may be? Um, yeah, I think if we can lean in with curiosity and a desire to really understand um then we can have productive conversations around these issues. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, we would definitely encourage you guys to consider going out and finding Jesus unarmed or any, in any of the books in this series. Um, and of course, Keith is just a email message away. Um, and he's very reachable. So, you know, if you, if you ever want to have a conversation with him, I, I feel like I'm volunteering him, but I think he would be more than willing, um, as would <laughs> Becca or I, of course, in, in addition to, to yeah, Keith. So, sure. so do not hesitate to reach out. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. For more info about Peace Catalyst and to help support our peace building work, please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org. Thanks, everyone. Bye.